0: 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in 2 Thessalonians. Uh, if you're a guest with us, we've been doing this series for the last several weeks through 1 and 2 Thessalonians, um, talking about in the meantime, how do we live faithfully for the Lord in light of His return? The Lord's coming back. We're excited about it. As Christians, we believe in the second coming. Um, we're excited about it, but we've got work to do in the meantime. God's called us to live faithfully for Him in the light of his return. And that's what both of these letters, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, are all about. So we did 1 Thessalonians uh, over the course of several weeks. And then last week we jumped into 2 Thessalonians. And today we'll be in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm going to pray for us this morning and we'll dig into God's word together. God, it is an encouragement. It is a, uh, man, it's a challenge sometimes to, to open your word and to see what you have to say about life and and. Uh, the times that we live in and the times that uh, have existed throughout human history. To look at what we have to look forward to in the future. Uh, it's an encouragement and it's a challenge. And I pray, God, that this morning that both of those things would happen. For each person that's in the room. For each person that's listening online. For each person that later will will uh, listen to this and stream it later. God, that we would be encouraged and that we would be challenged. And Holy Spirit, we pray that you would use your words today that as I open them and, and talk about them and read them and expound on them, God, that, that you would help me to say the things that need to be said, to, to not say the things that don't need to be said, um, and that we would be encouraged and we would be challenged this morning. And we thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we jump into 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want to start by saying something that I try to say uh, as frequently as I can from this stage, because it's so important in the culture that we live in, and that's this simple fact. Truth matters. Truth really matters. As a matter of fact, last year about this time, I did a little short series in 2 John and Third John, and the, the title of the series was Truth Matters, because those two books are all about God's truth and why God's truth matters. But Truth matters, like where we get our truth matters, how we define truth matters, and how we respond to truth especially matters. We live in what some people today have termed a post-truth culture, meaning that it's not just a world of relativism where you can have any truth that you want, believe whatever you want, just don't believe it's right, right? That, that's uh, post-modernism. But a post-truth culture is a culture that says, yeah, there might be such thing as truth, or there may, somebody may like have truth and say truth and, and believe truth, but what really, really matters is our experience. And so kind of truth gets pushed to the side and subverted, a post-truth culture. And in the midst of that culture, truth matters now more than it ever has. Truth has always been important. In fact, Jesus had some interesting words to say about truth. As you remember, in uh, the Gospel of John, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he had some of these words to say about truth. John 8, 31 and 32, it says this, If you abide or remain, if you stand firm and, and stay strong in my truth, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Some of you are like, I thought that was Martin Luther King. Well, Jesus quoted Martin Luther King, and it was really cool, and he said, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, right? And here's what's interesting in the world that we live in, right? Everybody wants freedom. Like, I need to be free. Give me freedom. I need freedom. I want freedom. And I'll cast off all shackles of authority, and I'll cast off all truth, and I'll take everything other than my personal experience, and then I'm, like, free if I can define my own truth and live out of my own truth, then I'm completely free. Oh, I feel so free. And here's the problem, is that what that results in is something called autonomy, but not something called freedom. And there's a huge difference, okay? I've used this analogy before. I'm driving on a mountain highway, right? I'm driving on a a forest service road in the mountains. If there's guardrails, I have freedom. I have the freedom to, like, look at my cell phone, which I would never do, or drink a cup of coffee, or look at the scenery. Because if I go a little too far to the side, I'm going to hit the guardrail, right? Right? I have a little bit of freedom. I would suggest to you that when I'm on a forest service road, no guardrails, thousands of feet to certain death, I might have autonomy, but I don't have a lot of freedom. And it's, the same thing holds true in a culture that wants to subvert and cast off all forms of truth and all forms of authority. We get a lot of autonomy, but we don't get much freedom. And what Jesus in the Bible and the Christian worldview offers us is guardrails that gives us freedom. And Jesus says, if you abide in my what? In my word. Because the word is where we find freedom. Because the word is where we find truth. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Later on in John's gospel, he's praying. There's about three chapters, John 15, 16, and 17. It's called the high priestly prayer. And in John 17, verse 17, he says these words that some of you are familiar with sanctify them, set them apart. In the truth, your word is truth. Where we find our truth and how we define truth matters, right? Spiritual truth, God's truth comes from God's word. And truth is always important and truth always matters and how we respond to to truth matters. And it's interesting today that we're going to take a large chunk, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 has 17 verses, that's a lot longer than I would normally teach in, on one chunk. The reason I'm putting this all together is because at the very beginning, at the very end, he's going to give us this understanding of truth and how important truth is. And I find it especially interesting that as we're talking about end times and second coming, and as Paul was writing to this church, and he's correcting some of their theology with relation to like what's going to happen at the end of the world, one of the things that he's going to tell them is that truth is so, so, so important. And and this concept of of trusting the truth is so important for us for a few reasons. One of the things it's going to do is it's going to guard us from speculation. It's going to guard us from these unhealthy rabbit trails as it relates to this area of theology. An unhealthy fixation on the when and the how and how many different books can I read and the charts that I can unfold. And today it's going to become especially important because you're going to be introduced to a person that many of you have heard a lot about, the Antichrist. You heard of the Antichrist, right? Some of you are like, yeah, I I think I voted against him in the last election. No, 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 right? Every generation has somebody that they just know is the Antichrist. It was that way in the first century. and It's been that way every century since that, that people have this idea that they think they know who the Antichrist is. Well, Paul's going to tell us some things about the Antichrist, but here's, here, here's the tendency. We start putting labels on the Antichrist. That's that political party. I guarantee you, right? No, that's got to be that world ruler. I know the Antichrist has to be Russian. He's got to be. it has got to be, right? No. And, and what happens is, is when we learn from the truth and we take the truth in, from God's word is that we can trust that truth with our lives, and it shapes the way that we live faithfully for the Lord right here and right now. So you ready to get into it? We have got a couple verses before we get to the Antichrist thing. I know we're, some of us are like all excited. We've got a couple verses first. We're just going to go through the text. I don't have a lot of points. I'm just going to point some things out as we walk through the text this morning. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let's talk about that little uh, opening piece right there. This is actually the third time that the writer, the Apostle Paul, God's messenger, will have taught this same church, this group of people, on this topic. You can look in verse 5, which we'll get to in a few moments, and he says, I actually talked to you about this when I came to you. So we have said several times throughout our, our study, that Paul started this church, and he was with them for probably less than a month. One of the things that Paul talked about when he started the church, Acts, I think it's 17, when he started this church, one of the things that he taught them about was things related to the second coming, things related to the end times. He didn't get to teach them everything that, that he wanted to teach them, but he taught them some things. And he'll say that here in just a few minutes. He's like, we've already talked about this. So that was the first time. The second time he talked to them was in 1 Thessalonians when he wrote that letter. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 has a lot to do with this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. I told you how I interpret that and understand that. And then now he's going to talk to them a third time about this same idea. I want you to notice why he does that. He says, verse 2, because some of you are, are being quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. The idea there is if you, if you think about a ship that, is, especially in that day, a sailboat, a sailing ship that would have been moored to a dock, would have been tied to a dock, and then hurricane force winds come in and rip the boat away from its mooring. That quickly shaken in mind is that same idea right there. He's saying you're losing your, your spiritual moorings, that the, the winds of controversy are coming in and you're losing your moorings. You're, you're losing uh, your composure as it relates to this. He says it's either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. So somebody had, had come to those people and Paul had taught them, he, he taught them God's truth. And somebody else had come in and had come in and either uh, like uh, fomented a, a spirit where people were speculating and thinking of lots of different things Probably a couple guys started blogs and a YouTube channel back in the day, right? And they had all these ideas about the how and the when and the where and the who. And there was just this spirit that was going on that was an unhealthy spirit related to the end times. Does this sound like any Christians that you've known, right? People who, who just know when it's going to happen and how it's going to go down. There was that spirit. He said the other thing that was shaking them is that there was a spoken word that people came in with authority, a seeming spiritual authority, and spoke to them ab- about this. And then the last one is that somebody actually forged a letter from the Apostle Paul. Now, we know that not all the letters that Paul wrote were Scripture, that he wrote other letters that weren't Scripture, but he had a lot of Scripture. And I don't know about you, but if I'm forging a letter from the Holy Spirit, I'm nervous. Right? I'm a little concerned. It's like, sign, Holy Spirit of God. That's going to get you in some trouble. Have you seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark? You notice know what's about to happen to you if you forge a letter from the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be pretty. But people were doing all of these things, and they were doing it in such a way that was causing Christians to be deceived. So, what was happening is that they were receiving misinformation, they were receiving disinformation, and people were intentionally deceiving them related to the end times. Let me ask you this question not just related to theology, but in life. Have you ever been deceived? Have you ever received misinformation or the more popular term now, disinformation? Information that was intended, like it was intentionally given to deceive you, right? This car warranty is a 10-year warranty. Sign on the dotted line. It covers everything. You're three years in. Parts are falling off. You take it back to the dealership. Hey, what about this? Oh, I'm really sorry, but that transmission's not covered under the... Bumper-to-bumper warranty. If you read here, uh, right below your signature, right? You ever been deceived? Think about the heartburn that, that caused you in your life. And spiritual deception is a real thing. There are so many times and so many places and, and so many ways that you can get information as it relates to, like, spiritual life. Did you know that we, people will say, like, we live in the Northwest, it's a real pagan culture. Did you know that's not really true? This is one of the more spiritual cultures in the country. One of the more, like, spirituality is a real big deal here. You can believe whatever you want. You just can't believe it's right, right? Spirituality, we we miss the point. We think, like, man, this is totally a pagan culture. Like, spirituality is a big deal around here. But when we start talking about Jesus as I am the way, the truth, and the life, that's where things get a little tricky, But you can find spiritual input anywhere. You can find somebody online that agrees with your crazy philosophy and theology of life just about anywhere. And it's so important because deception, and I'm going to say this over and over, deception is always a danger. Deception is always a danger. Man, we can think, like, I got it together, I got my mind right, I've got, like, as it pertains to my spiritual life, I've got it dialed in. And realize that where you're getting your information is a bad place. These were people who were coming into the church, and they sounded spiritual. They maybe even had verses, right? And they sounded like the things that they were saying was good, but they were deceiving them. And they were causing them to be shaken and causing them to be alarmed. I want to tell you something. Like, from 2020 to 2023, there have been a lot of shaken Christians, Right, you get COVID, you get election craziness, you get woke movement, you get all of these different things. I had lots of people coming to me asking me questions about, is this the end time? How do we know this is the end time? I'm freaking out because I think this is the end time. What we need to do in those times is trust the truth. Find our truth from God's word and trust that truth. So in verses 3 through 5, he'll talk about it even more. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. Church, don't be deceived. Like the antidote, and I know this sounds a little glitchy, but the, the antidote to deception is discernment, right? Like being discerning. I can read lots of books about the Bible, read lots of blogs on the Bible, listen to lots of teachers, but you know what I really need to do? Like read the text. Dig into the text. Talk to people who understand like the text. If you're going to a church and the church, and, and again, we have lots of people who come and listen online, so I need to say this. Like if you're going to a place and, and there's a verse and then it gets like put on the shelf and they don't expound scripture, just be careful, okay because this is where we find our truth, not not here, right here is where we find truth, and so at the end of the day man that's that's what we need to be digging in on. so he says, let no one deceive you in any way, and then he gets to the fun stuff that you've been waiting for for that day will not come they were deceived and misinformed. about When is the day of the Lord going to come? First Thessalonians, they thought that some of their friends and family members had died and were going to miss out. Now they were afraid that like all of them, like the Lord had come and we were like, oh, what just happened? We, We missed it. And Paul's going to say, trust me, when he really comes, ain't nobody going to miss it, right? And he says that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Some of your translations say the apostasy. And the man of lawlessness, that's another name for the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called god or object of worship, so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So a couple things about this. One of the things that we believe that this text teaches us really clearly is this, that there's going to be a day of the Lord. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Like the just judgment of God is going to happen. There's going to be a day of the Lord. That day of the Lord is going to get kicked off by a great apostasy, okay? I know some of us think, man, we live in a bad time right now. I will tell you that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Don't you feel encouraged? Are you excited? Yes, <laughs> right? I know I bought that gun and there's that, that ammo for a reason. Yes. But at the end of the day, he says that there's going to be a great apostasy. Now, there have been times, and I would argue that now is one of them, where people are turning away from the Lord. Uh, there's, a, there's a theology. I, some people, good Christian people, believe it. I can't buy into it. But it actually says that things are just going to kind of continue to get better, and then we're going to be in this time, and the Lord's going to come back. As things continue to get better and ramp up and they're good, then it's going to be good enough, and the Lord's going to come back. Okay? Okay? I don't buy into that, and here's one of the reasons. Because he says that, that a great apostasy is going to come. Some of you are like, is that an Italian dish? I can see it in your eyes, right? Apostasy. It means a lot of people are going to turn away from the Lord. In fact, basically everybody is going to turn away from the Lord. Now, in my understanding of that theological system, this is not for Christians, okay? The Christians will be removed before this time happens. Now, that's good news. If I'm right, that's really good news but that there's going to be a great apostasy where where people all together are going to turn away from the Lord, turn away from the things of the Lord, not be interested in, and not only that, but be antagonistic toward anything related to the Lord. And that that time is going to be kicked off by someone called the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist. Here he's also called the son of destruction. Interestingly, there's one other person in human history called a son of destruction or the son of perdition. Does that sound familiar? Judas Iscariot was called the son of perdition. And so he was in some ways even a prefiguring of the one who would betray Jesus. This person is going to be worse than that. And again, the word antichrist comes to mind. And so where does that come from? That's the the name. You don't hear a lot of people talking about the man of lawlessness or some of these things. They talk about the antichrist because it sounds way cooler. And it's easier to fit on a t-shirt. And so Antichrist is actually only used a couple times in the Bible, and it's in a kind of a weird spot. It's used four times, three times in 1 John, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John, way at the back of the Bible, and then the other time is in 2 John. A couple of those times it's used to, to just generally talk about people who are anti-God. okay? People who have turned completely away from God, don't want anything to do with God. He says that all of those people are, small a, Antichrists. And that all of those people who would, throughout the course of human history, would be completely anti-everything God, all prefigure the capital A Antichrist. Now Daniel 7 and 8, you get to hear about this guy. There's there's one called the little horn in Daniel's vision. That's the Antichrist. Revelation 13 and 17, you're familiar with the beast, the mark of the beast. Right? That idea, like that's, again, another way that the Bible talks about the Antichrist. And here are some of the things that we know about him, especially from this passage of Scripture. The, the first thing, the answer, everybody wants to who is he? Right? Did I vote against him in the last election? Like, really? Because some of you are like, I think I did. Yeah. But here's the weird part, is people in the first century thought they knew who he was. And in the second century, they're like, oh, that was those Roman emperors, man. They thought that they were God. They actually called themselves God. So it must have been them. And then throughout the course of human history, whenever there has been a great, great political ruler, military figure, despotic type of figure that's like really bad and evil, everybody said, oh, there he is. That's the Antichrist. And each and every time they've been right. That's a little a Antichrist, prefiguring one who is far, far worse than any of those. Why? Well, because here's what Paul says. We, won't, we don't know his identity, but we know what he does. He's going to come and oppose all other gods and all forms of worship. This makes him worse than even the Roman emperors who would allow polytheism in their day. They said, you can worship us, and you can worship all these other Greek and Roman gods as long as you worship us as well. This guy will be even worse. He's like, there's no other, you can't worship anyone besides just me. He requires worship of himself and himself only. It says that he'll set himself up in the temple, meaning that he'll actually, he's going to require that everybody worship him. That's that mark of the beast thing, if you were wondering at all, right? And he's going to proclaim himself to be a god. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 and 10, I want you to see these words. It says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. And I'll stop there. That the Antichrist is actually empowered by Satan. Some of you are like, man, we suddenly went like all sci-fi here, didn't we, real quick? right? But again, this is the truth of God's Word. And He wants us to know something about what's coming. says He's going to be empowered by Satan to do great signs and wonders these have great power to deceive people. Here's where people get it screwy again like as, especially Christians. We like think of Satan as, you know, red suit, horns, tail, pitchfork. Remember that Satan and we forget what the Bible actually says about him that he was actually the most beautiful of angels. And we think Antichrist, we think like Eye of Sauron kind of thing, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, right? Like, oh my gosh, the Antichrist is going to be terrible, right? Ragnarok in the Thor movies and stuff like that. You're like, that's the Antichrist. Everybody's going to run and scream and freak out, and it's going to be crazy. No, you know what's actually going to happen? He's probably he's going to be male. He's probably going to be like relatively attractive. He's probably going to, he's going to be a very charismatic personality. And a lot of people are going to listen to him. A lot of people are going to want to follow him. A lot of people are going to hear everything he has to say. They're going to subscribe to everything he uh, writes. They're going to subscribe to everything that he posts. He's going to be the most powerful and most popular person on the face of the earth. Like That's what scripture portrays this person at. And how do we know? because he's going to have the power to deceive everybody. And I don't know about you, but when I watch Thor Ragnarok, I'm not like, I'd follow that, right? But no, his political ideas are going to make a lot of sense. His philosophy is going to sound really great, but it's going to be completely anti-Bible. But a lot of people are going to be like, that makes a ton of sense. Sign me up for that. And he's going to get so many people on board that when he flips the switch, and for us like pre-tribulation people, we believe this is halfway through that tribulation period, that he's going to flip a switch, and then he's going to become this evil, this bad guy that's going to say, hey, you know what? I'm so amazing and so great. Here I am, and I sit on the throne. Worship me and worship me alone. I'm your deliverer. And then everybody's going to come, and they're going to be deceived, and they're going to worship. That's the Antichrist, and he's setting the stage, Right? he thinks that he's setting the stage for satan to come and, and to rule and do what satan's going to do but as we're going to see all of this is under god's power but here's what i want to warn us with is this it says in that verse in verse 9 that he's coming by the activity of satan with power and false signs and wonders with all wicked deception even satan has signs and wonders I need us to hear this. We live in a, a spiritual, uh, in, a, in an environment, a Christian environment, like in our world, where spiritual experience rules the day. Rather than studying God's word, studying the revelation that God has given us in scripture, rather than seeking truth and understanding in that way, everybody wants a spiritual experience. Give me a sign, give me a wander, wonder, give me a, a word, word from the Lord. Give me a dream. Give me a vision. Give me a great spiritual experience. I need you to know that even Satan has spiritual experiences. That even Satan can give people spiritual experiences. That Satan can subvert and can deceive and can use spiritual things to deceive. Christians aren't usually deceived by things that are completely like out and out satanic. But he can use spiritual things to deceive people. Even today. And so for us, it's important, where do we find truth? That's why we trust the truth of God's word before we trust spiritual experience. And we interpret life like this. We take whatever the experience is and we put it underneath the lens of Scripture rather than this. Rather than taking our experience and trying to figure out how to fit Scripture into our experience, right? Because Satan can deceive through that. And I offer that as a word of encouragement and a word of warning The encouragement is that we can trust the truth. The warning is that deception is always, always, always a danger. So the Antichrist is, will be, a real, a powerful entity, but I can trust the truth. I don't have to fear all of that. And verses 6 through 8 will then unpack a little bit more about why we don't have to fear all that. And this is where I think the fun begins. It says, And you know, verse 6, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only who who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring it to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now up there in verse 6 is one of these places. There are several places where theologians and scholars say, man, I can't wait till I get to heaven so I can ask Paul what in the world he was talking about. Verse 6 is one of those ones. He says, and you know what is restraining him now, but nobody has any idea what the dude's talking about. I read all these commentaries, all these really smart guys. And I'm like, we don't have a clue. You guys heard of the church father, Augustine? You've heard of him? Three people have, really? Oh, we got work to do here, right? The confessions of St. Augustine? Yeah. Like, he was w- real smart, way smarter than me. You're surprised, I know, but he really, really was. Yeah. He had a great comment on this. He's like, I have no idea what Paul is saying here. Right? Some people think that Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit of God or talking about the church as restraining evil. Other people think, no, he's talking about the Roman Empire. Or he's talking about some other evil thing that's like holding back this evil until they can really unleash it. Nobody has a clue. And Paul's like, hey, you guys, when I was with you and I forgot to write it down, remember what I was talking about? And we're all for thousands of years like, uh, hello. It would be nice to be let in. The Bible tells us everything we need to know, not everything we want to know. And this will be one of those we'll be left wondering. I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit. I think that there's no other that has enough power to restrain evil and and the desire to restrain evil, both the desire and the power. So when you read The Restrainer, I think that he's talking about the Holy Spirit of God. and, And he says, you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. And I think what that shows us is pretty simple, that even Satan's timing is under God's control. Like, even Satan's timing is under God's control. Like, I can t- trust that truth. And it's an interesting picture, right? That you've got Satan who thinks he's going to win the battle. And you've got his precursor, his, his hype man, the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is going to go out and he's going to set the stage. And they're ready. And they're excited. And they're like, we're going to take over. The world is ours. And we're going to rule all things. And God's just up there like, okay, are we doing this again? Right? And that's why I love verse eight. He says, And the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Now I was gonna drop a bad breath joke in the first service, but they are like way too way too tight for that. So I thought I'd wait till here. Is that okay? All right? It's one bad case of halitosis. The Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. That's like, you know. The Antichrist is here, and he's ready to wage war, and Jesus shows up, and he's just like, gone. No contest, right? We're not talking about a 15-round bout, and let's go to the cards and see who won. We're talking about all the hype, all the power, all the, look, I've deceived everyone. Isn't this amazing? Jesus shows up, be gone. What were we doing, right? And I love that. It says he would that the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing just by the appearance of his coming. And that's where we go back to Revelation 19. I love that Mark read it. I didn't remember that he was going to read it, even though they told me. And so I thought, well, I'm going to read it again. Then I saw heaven opened. That's going to be cool. And behold, a white horse. The one on it is called Faithful and True. That's Jesus And in righteousness he judges and makes war. In righteousness he judges, remember that. His eyes are like a flame of fire. All right, you guys, two weeks from now, we start an Advent series, right? Advent is when we talk about and think about and celebrate the first coming of the Lord. The series is going to be called What Child Is This? I've already seen the graphic. It's got a little manger in it. Aren't we all excited about mangers and baby Jesus and we can have the little skit and it's going to be pretty. That was really cool for the first coming. A very different Jesus is coming the second time, okay? We got baby Jesus, servant Jesus, we got humble Jesus, we've got infant Jesus, meek and mild. You can probably sing the Christmas song about it. And then we've got Jesus from Revelation 19. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head. Regular kings wear one crown, not Jesus, many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Like if you pre-blood your robe, you're pretty sure it's going to get crazy, right? He's like, you know what, it's going to get ugly, so I'm just going to start with a bloody robe. Let's go. Let me think of a guy putting on his camo suit and just grabbing some like chicken blood and just go, all right, it's going to get ugly, let's get after it. Yeah, the guy comes into the MMA cage. Okay, sorry, I'll stop. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the Word of God. The same guy who had this vision is the one who wrote the Gospel of John. John 1.1, 1, 1, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about Jesus and the armies of the Lord. Arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, white is supposed to be a symbol of purity. And it's also a symbol of victory. Because you're going to a sword battle on white horses in fine white linen. Guess what? You're probably pretty confident. Right? You're like, I'm just going to go ahead and put on my winner's robes now, before this thing gets started. Because I'm pretty sure that Jesus is going to win. And here they come. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the battle scene continues from there. And you can read it on your own. But that is the Lord who we trust. That's the Jesus who wins. We love Christmas Jesus because Christmas Jesus leads us to second coming Jesus. That's what this passage is, is getting us excited about. You go into verses 9 through 12. It says, The coming of the lawless, and I read some of this already, by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception. And notice who are the objects of all of this. Those who are perishing. Like, there will be those who experience victory, but there will be those who will be Perishing. There's are not my words, they're the Lord's words. This is a fact of life. That there are those who, by faith in Jesus, are victors. There are those who, as we'll see, by refusing, rejecting Jesus, are perishing. And it says they're perishing, and I need you to see this in the middle of verse 10, because they refuse to love the truth. They refuse to love the truth be saved therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not what believe the truth and had pleasure in righteousness throughout scripture we see God hardening the hearts of people who have already hardened their hearts God hardening the hearts of people who constantly willfully reject him The definitive statement on this is in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and I want to read some of that to you because it's so important that we see this. Our understanding of God, of God's justice and God's judgment, our understanding of the grace of Jesus, our understanding of truth and how we uh, approach truth hinges on what Romans 1 says. Romans 1, starting in verse 18, says that the wrath, the righteous, the just wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, of people, who by their unrighteousness do what? Suppress the truth. And Paul will then argue throughout the rest of one eighteen through 32 that truth is known, and and even for people who don't have God's word, that, that, that there are truths about God that can be known, even in looking at nature. And I'll show that to you in just a minute. But that people are in the business of suppressing and pushing down the truth. Today we do that by redefining truth, by claiming that there's no such thing as absolute truth. But throughout history, people have suppressed the truth in one way or another. Verse 19 says, What can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse." He argues clearly and articulately that God and the truth about God, enough, there's enough that people can know and see to ask questions and to further pursue God. It says, Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That the more I push God away, the more it darkens my heart. It says that claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Men are constantly suppressing and pushing down the truth of God in one way or another for one reason or another. And then Romans says that there are consequences, and I want you to see what those are. He says God gave them up. In other words, God said, like parents say to their kids sometimes, that's what you want, have at it. God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That exchange, exchanging the truth about God for the truth that we want to see. Verse 26. These verses are, are essential, but they're so unpopular. For this reason... Because they were suppressing the truth, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Church, That's a serious message. It's not culturally conditioned. This is not just, as some would say, about something that was happening then and is different now. This is not just about like, certain very heinous acts that are very different than domesticated acts in the same way. That he's calling all of this wrong and sinful and shameful. And then in verse 28 he says, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous malice. And he goes on and on and on and just gives you a laundry list of what happens when we don't give God God's place. And I need you to see that three times he says that God gave them up. There is God's active wrath that is poured out, especially as we see in the end times, God's active wrath will be poured out. But in the meantime... God's passive wrath is being poured out. And that's what Romans talks about when God says, that's what you want, go for it. And receive the due penalty for that perversion. This is not hate speech. This is love speech. This is not intolerant. This is not bigoted. This is not any of those things that we are accused of. This is saying that we have a worldview that believes that God truly loves people but that God gets to be God. That I don't get to be God. That God gets to be God and set the standard and set the truth. And He does it not out of His hatred for us, but out of His love for us. And so that there are real standards that when I choose to suppress and push down that truth, that there are real consequences. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans. That's what Paul's talking about as I flip back to 2 Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, that's what he's talking about. People who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. They don't believe the truth, but they take pleasure in unrighteousness. And that's when we come to verses 13 through 17. And as I get there, I want to say this: that, that we, all of us, have to keep our hearts soft toward truth. And I would say this, right? If you're here and you're a Christian and you, you love the Lord or, or maybe like, you've gone to church a bunch and you're kind of still like on the fence about it or you grew up in church and now for some reason you're back or you have some like Christian background, we've got to keep ourselves, our hearts soft to the truth. In other words, to keep pursuing the truth. Like I may have questions, I may not have, uh, like some of the stuff that I just read may like really make me like cringe, but I've got to keep asking the questions and I've got to keep exploring the truth. As opposed to just putting the hand out and being like, forget it, reject it, screw it all, right? And I would submit this for some of you either who are here or maybe will watch online. If you're not a Christian, you're trying to figure this out. Or maybe you're watching just looking for ammo and I'm just giving you some ammo, right? I would say keep your heart soft to the possibility of the truth that exists in Scripture. And we do that through constant exposure and constant submission, Meaning we're regularly listening to God's truth. That we're regularly understanding and reading and, and, and getting God's truth. But then not only that, we're like bowing our knee in submission to God's truth. Because that's what those people in Romans weren't doing. So we bow ourselves in submissions to God's truth. And then here's what happens in verses 13 and following. Paul says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification, or being set apart by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. Notice all of his talk about truth in these verses. Verse 14, to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold on to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. You see how Paul sets that apart from what he talked about at the beginning? He said, you're being deceived by false teaching and people coming in the, in the wrong name and with the wrong letter. But Paul understood that he was God's emissary, that he was speaking God's word. He says, hold on to the truth of God. Verse 16, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts, establish them in every good work and in every good word. Christian, by the grace of God, by God's grace, you accepted the truth. You are saved by the truth of the gospel. You're continuing to be taught the truth hold on to the truth take comfort and hope from the truth ultimately trust the truth right truth matters deception is always a danger we pursue the truth of God's word we trust the truth for our salvation if you're not a christian you trust the truth of god's word the truth of jesus for your salvation and if you are a christian you trust god's truth for your growth your sanctification And then what happens is that you get comfort. You're established in every good work and every good word. In the meantime, you guys, as we await the Lord's return, let's trust the truth. Amen.